Welcome back to another Two Guys, One Topic expert interview. This week, our topic was death row, and we needed to find ourselves a topic expert, didn't we, Liam? We most certainly did. Now, what would be the best expert we could possibly have found to talk to us about death row? Only someone that was actually on death row, sentenced to a crime that he didn't commit. He was subsequently released from death row. Um, we've already done the interview, so I, I know that he's about to tell everybody his story. It is unbelievably interesting. Our interview today is with Ray Crone. Right, Ray. Thank you for joining us on the Two Guys One Topic podcast. Well, thanks for the opportunity. I'm looking forward to it. I'm pretty sure you know we couldn't start today talking about death row. First, asking you know about your story, about how you ended up in prison, but perhaps more importantly, how you ended up on death row. We just wondered whether you could let our listeners know about the circumstances that that led to you finding yourself sort of falsely imprisoned for such a long time. I, I'm, you must have told that story a hundred times, but if you could just tell it to us. Yeah, I'll, I'll condense it. I was, uh, did six years in the Air Force. Uh, my last place was stationed in Phoenix, Arizona. I liked it there. I was uh, single, unmarried. Uh, I was involved in a lot of sports. So a lot of them were sponsored by pubs. A local bartender was found murdered in a pub that she worked at. The, the owner found her the next morning when he came in. She'd been stabbed to death in the men's bathroom. But all her clothing had been removed, cut off of her with a butcher knife from the kitchen in that uh, pub. Um, they began the investigation on the assumption it had to be somebody that knew her. There was no evidence of a break-in, no sign of a robbery. They questioned some co-workers. One of them said I was a boyfriend. They questioned me within a few hours of finding the body. I was dumbfounded. I was at home. I had nothing to do with this. I talked to him for three hours. Uh, I told him I had no information. Uh, during that point, they had taken my sneakers from me. They took pictures of my, my torso, had me take my shirt off. They took fingerprints, uh, mug shots. They also took a, 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 a impression of my teeth with like a styrofoam cup, like a, a coffee cup. I, I, I cooperate. I, I, I'm no trouble. I have no record. Like I said, I was six years of uh, U.S. Air Force, seven years as a U.S. letter carrier, U.S. Postal Service. Uh, so I cooperated the police. I had nothing to hide. The next day I was questioned again. I was taken in. Uh, uh, they had a, a, bite, uh, a local medical examiner there, had a dentist chair set up, took casts of my teeth. Uh, back when I was 18 years old, I was a pastor in a head-on collision. I woke up with a broken jaw. My mouth was wired shut. I had some teeth damage over six weeks repaired uh, or over six weeks until the, the braces came off. Uh, my top and bottom jaw didn't line up. They had to do another six weeks of wired shut. So I was always careful with my teeth, uh, but they were unique as a result of this accident. Just two days after the murder, I was arrested based on the medical examiner's assumption, opinion that marks on her, found on her body, on her breast, on her neck matched my teeth. Wow. Now I'm dumbfounded. I'm thinking I'm going to be out any minute. Uh, but then the hours and days and weeks went by and they proceeded to prosecute me for that. They used a, a bite mark expert, not the local medical examiner, but a bite mark expert who testified marks on the body happened at the time of her death, that my teeth were unique, that they matched those marks. And that made me Ray Cronin a murderer. I'm dumbfounded. I had a court appointed attorney who never did a capital murder case before. Wow. Uh, there I was, I'm supposed to show remorse, regret for an act I never committed. How do you show remorse for something you didn't do? Yeah, exactly. I told him you got the wrong person. You know, I didn't do this. I, I was outraged. I was upset. I'm in a courtroom. I'm 35 years old. How can this be happening in my country of justice and fairness? Uh, and there they 
they were, uh, and they uh, sentenced me to death. They called the the bite mark was excessive pain and suffering to the victim's breast, uh, and they they called it that was cruel and unusual. Uh, they said it could have been even after she was dead. Then that was like necrophilia. That's heinous and depraved. In America, you have to have at least one aggravating factor to get a death sentence. The the prosecution puts on a an argument as to why this is uh, why the what aggravating factors uh, are uh, uh, present present. Uh, and they used that bite mark as cruel and unusual and heinous and depraved. And uh, the judge uh, sentenced me to death uh, because I wouldn't take a plea bargain and I uh, I fought them. That is absolutely <laughs> unbelievable. To I can't even imagine how that would feel being in that situation as you were showing. It's impossible to show remorse for something you didn't do and then being sentenced to death. Wow. Like, yeah, how, how did you... I, I, can you explain how you felt as they sentenced you? Like, you know, for something that you know you haven't done, like what on earth does that feel like? Uh, you know, it, since it wasn't so uh, automatic, surprising, I didn't expect to get convicted, but, you know, but it was also the possibility. But sitting in trial and hearing some of the stories, I, my first trial, by the way, was only three and a half days. Most all of that was the prosecution. But hearing some of the lies, the misstatements, the, 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 the just outrageous accusations that were going on, I think this is crazy. Where am I? I'm in a different world. I'm not. This is not where I grew up in. This is not what I believed in and stood for. So I was already having a kind of like a, out of a body, out of mind, surreal experience yeah. going on. Yes. And by the time it got to the conviction part, they, they find you guilty first and at that time in America. This was in 1992 in Arizona. Uh, the jury finds you guilty, uh, but the judge does his sentencing, and that was actually four months later. So I had to wait after this, after the guilty part. So obviously the death penalty was on the, on the line because the prosecution said he was going to seek the death penalty. Uh, but when it came time to sentencing, and, and you're always told by your attorney to remain quiet, don't you know, emotionless, don't show any reaction to, to anything. And you sat there stagnant, if you will, almost like you're, you're present body-wise, but you're not supposed to think or do or act anything. Uh, when it finally came time to the sentencing, and, and as I said, when they put on the aggravating and then came the defense's part for the mitigating part, which is which is where you were supposed to show remorse. And I said, I have no remorse to show. Uh, again, I was dumb. It was like, you, you know, sentenced me to death. It's like, you might as well kill me. Everything I've stood for and believed in in my life and in my country and in my justice system has just been thrown out to win. It's been tossed completely upside down yeah. and I don't believe anything anymore. So I really wasn't in, in that surreal world that well, it doesn't matter what you did, but everything about me has now been destroyed. You've taken everything I ever believed in and including now you want to take my life. Thankfully, though, in America, I did know that you don't take them out and execute them directly. I mean, I, no. I went to death row. I was on death row almost three years. Yes. Uh, I had another opportunity. Yeah, we, we did read about the, the length of time that, that people spend on death row for various reasons, obviously appeals and, you know, very rightly so, certainly for, for yourself. And we were, one of the things we were intrigued about is when you're on death row for so long, it's just like day-to-day -day life on death row, being a death row inmate. And if you could just share some, you know, some experiences of what sort of happens on a daily basis. There's still, uh, I believe, uh, uh, close to 27, 28 death rows still in America, plus the federal government has one. They're not all the same sta states that have their own rules and regulations. Arizona's death row was isolation. We were in a single cell, uh, about a five and a half foot by eight foot uh, center block walls, uh, uh, concrete floor. There was metal bars in the front where the door was. 
I had a cement slab that had a two inch pad on that, which was my bed. I was given one sheet, one blanket, one towel. I wrapped my sneakers in my towel. That was my pillow. Wow. Uh, and that's where I lived. I got it out of there for, for, uh, uh, actually a total of, uh, uh, six hours a week, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday was rec day. They would come to your cell. You'd have to strip down. Everything comes off, pass it out through a, their, the doorway had a, a, what we called a trap. It was a hole about this big. You passed all your clothes out there and then you lifted and turned and bent and twisted to show every part of your body, make sure you weren't hiding anything. Okay. At which point your clothing was passed back in. That clothing was put on. You were you were shackled at the at the waist with handcuffs and a belt fastened. You were shackled at the ankles with a big chain, and then two officers would take you out into the desert, a 10-foot square hurricane fencing cage completely on the sides and the top, concrete floor, and you were out in the desert there for two hours on, on that day. Uh and and, and maybe I could could, could see an airplane fly over, maybe hear a car horn honk, a, a lawnmower, a motorcycle, a dog bark, something to remind me of the world that I'd been taken from. It was no longer available to me. Uh, but that was a, 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 a vacation. That was an escape from that them four walls in my prison cell. I could see other inmates. We never had no physical contact with other inmates. If an inmate was out, but you always were escorted, as I said, shackled at the waist with your hands and shackled at the ankles. You never had, uh, were, were left loose with any other inmate. There was always two guards. If another inmate was coming with two guards, one was always taken into a room or a side hall or something. So you didn't even pass within, you know, like COVID restriction now, within, even in six feet yeah. of yes. the other person. They wanted us isolated. They wanted us kept uh, apart. Uh, it was a, a type of suffering. The food, we never got a hot meal on death row ever. They don't let people on death row work in the kitchens and prepare food. Too many weapons, very dangerous. Our food was prepared in another yard. It was wheeled over in little carts, and it sat there until they felt like serving you. It could be hours. You could see that cart sitting in the hallway. Um, but, uh, you know, this this was was what we had. We did, we had a TV, yes. It was not cable TV like people say. We had, we had cable TV only in the fact that it plugged into a cable in the back of the TV mm -hmm. into the wall. Uh, you couldn't have an antenna. You couldn't have an antenna in your cell. That's a weapon. You'd be stabbing somebody. But, so this only went up to an antenna up in the roof, and we got three or four channels. Thankfully, one of them uh, was an educational channel. Uh, we were allowed to to, to read law books. Uh, uh, we did have access to a law library where you could go put in for it and request. We did get uh, two phone calls a month for 15 minutes. Uh, but the rest of it was existing inside that cell. My family uh, was back in Pennsylvania. We were allowed a list of 10 people that could visit or you could call. The, either one was, I thought, well, that's ironic. My, the people that I can call are back in Pennsylvania that can't visit. The people that can visit are here in Arizona yes. that I don't need to call, you know, but I can only put 10 people on my list. Uh, but that was that was my outside uh, uh, contact. Uh, of course, I had my, my family, my mom, you know, I'm, mom's, I'm the oldest son in my family. So, you know, there's always a, an extra bond there for the older older son. But that that's uh, I, I read a lot. I did uh, personal physical fitness in my cell uh, a lot. We were able to talk to people out through our cells. We had mirrors where we could look and see people. So you could still have a conversation. You weren't completely, in, you know, in isolation w without any any other interaction with people. Uh but that's what that's what we did. Uh, we talked, and we 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 learned about the law. Bigger, if I'm going to fight my my case, I got to learn about the law. You know, yes. if I'm going to fight, I better know something about it because I trusted it before, and it didn't work out well. No, uh, so I did a lot of studying. But that's that's pretty much the basic survival. It is in, 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 on death row. You you live to exist. You don't live. You just exist. And 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 uh, I, I can tell you, I slept with my mom and sent the Bible, which is one of the strongest things. I had two things. Well, I had three things. Well, one, I was innocent. I knew that. God knew that. 
my family only had to tell them once. They knew me at the age of 35, what I'd done, who I'd been in my past. They knew me well enough to believe me. My friends believed me, so I didn't have to convince them. And lastly, you know, I found strength in reading the Bible, that I could I could find strength in the passage of like, uh, out of the darkness shall come light, uh, rejoice in trials and tribulations, for you shall find favor in the sight of the Lord. I found strength in the stories of like Job and Jonah. And I prayed, I'm telling you, I prayed every night and slept with that under my pillow. Like, Lord, you know, I, I've been fortunate in life. I don't care if I never win another event. I was very good at darts. I played softball, a lot of stars. I don't care if I never win another thing in my life. Yes. Let me win my next trial. Wow. And it... It just it just seems like well it absolutely is a complete world apart to, to to normal life and even more so when you're when you're innocent and one of the things that we we were trying to understand which you've mentioned there was just that lack of human contact that you have and just how it is completely different. I know we're in COVID times now, but you know that that lack of human contact where if somebody's on death row for 16, 20 years they can go all of that time without ever actually having touched another human, which is just a, a strange scenario to be in. Unfortunately, too, in our justice system, there's so many of those men and women that have got put on death row that already had mental issues, already had some type of anxiety, some yeah. type of, of antisocial behavior that was not being treated and now was actually being exasperated you know, it was it, it was just becoming worse by that isolation and they weren't going to treat you about it if you had a health issue and said i got to go see the doctor it was you know you're having pains i had kidney stones they told me i had gas uh but anyway uh, they would basically some of the some of the guards would just say well hey you ain't gonna be around that long anyway you know that kind of stuff that's the kind of stuff that we're yeah. putting a lot of the people, a lot of, the, and and I understand prison guards. I understand uh, why they, what, the need, the purpose of them. But uh, unfortunately, some of them are there to want to be cops. They they were turned down from other positions. This is one job that they could get. They had some anger. They had some animosity. They had some issues, and some of them were just uh, downright uh, mean and 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 not only disrespectful, but just a rude to the visitors. A lot of them could not be out walking the yards with other prisoners. And that's why they were on death row where they were completely isolated and protected from the uh, 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 other uh, wow. inmates because we were all locked up, handcuffed. And so they could get away with whatever they wanted to. And that some of them just ended up there because of their previous behavior when they were out in contact with that actual inmates. You mentioned there about being able to to sort of communicate or sort of talk with other inmates. One of the things um, some of the students in my school asked was, obviously, you know that, that you're innocent, but do the other inmates say they're innocent? And like, do you believe them? Because obviously, you know, you are. Is it mm -hmm. is it sort of like a bond you, you make with the others? And, and it's a great question. because this something we would all wonder about? Because it's proven that not everybody in there is guilty. We've had mm -hmm. over 180, I believe, now in the United States released from our death row out of about 3,000 are still on death row. How many more of them are innocent? How many of them are going to have a chance that I had uh, the good fortune? Uh, but uh, yes, uh, you know, first off, there's no point in me walking around saying I'm innocent. Leave me alone. I shouldn't be here. Yeah. Hey, most of the people in there killed somebody. Most of them people in there had a record of, of violence. Uh, they're not looking for no sissies or nobody weak. You better stand up. Now, they said we used to have a saying, you don't have to stand tall, but you have to stand up. So, you know, you got to act like you, you, you don't mess with me. You better find somebody weaker than me because you're not going to like what happens. Uh, so walking around saying you're innocent is not the best policy. Nobody really cares. Ain't none of the inmates going to get you out. And none of the guards certainly care about you. Okay. You know, they're just going to see that you, we got to give you food when you were supposed to and see you get a shower. 
But as time goes by, as I started, I actually was fortunate enough on death row to get a job working in a law library. They actually allowed a couple pe people. There was 122 of us, I believe, on Arizona's death row at the time I got there. I was able to work in a law library and actually help with the other inmates. And there's some curious things or some there's some things that just uh, and let me tell you, I was reasonably good at school. I mean, I graduated in the top 15 percent of my class. So I'm not a dummy. I can pick up stuff on two. And I've been around people. I'm an outgoing person. So uh, but I'm also not a fool. And so you're you're very guarded, and careful, because most of the people, again, as I say, are in there for a darn good reason. Yes. They deserve it but not everybody. But yes, so the answer is by working in a law library, helping people with their books and hearing some of their comments, some of their, their, their uh, expressions, some of their feelings and emotions about what happened and how it happened related exactly to, to me, how I felt, what mm -hmm. I'd yeah. seen, what I failed to understand or how I couldn't believe this. And so I, I was, I was definitely sure that there was a probably at least a handful of those 120 people. I didn't meet everybody, uh, but but uh, but at least a handful of them that were just as innocent, or at least uh, should not have been on death row. Uh, if, if you know they weren't the, the real culprit or the yeah. you know. Uh, but let me just pass on a quick example, one story. I was working with a man, and see when we're locked down, like where each of our bays were sixteen cells, and there was about uh, six of them all together. Uh, might have been eight. I'm trying to remember. But anyway, uh, I was a, I became a legal counselor where I could help uh, other inmates with their cases. We 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 would meet in in the cages where they'd be on the other cage. I'd be on this cage, but I could talk to them, do legal notes. Could also help them, uh, uh, you know, with the disciplinary issues if they got a disciplinary issue right there in in DOC Department of Correction. And I had this one fellow I would always meet, and it was nice just to get out of your cell. You could you could meet with the person once a month, and they could actually get you out of your cell. And so uh, I was talking with this fella, and for a couple months, we've been meeting, just talking, never really about cases, more just talking about stuff. But he would get me to read a letter from his mom regularly when she would write. He couldn't read. Okay. I would read his letter to him. I would read his letter to him. Uh, he would dictate a letter back to me. I'd write it, give it to him, and he mailed it off to his mom. As time went on, probably over three or four months, we did get around to talk a little bit about his case. Some paperwork came up, something he had to respond to. I forget exactly what it was, but he told me a little bit about his case. He was in there for signing a confession. Okay. He signed a confession to committing a horrible murder, got sentenced to death, and I know for a fact a man cannot read or write. What did he sign? What did he read? Because he surely wasn't fake with me letting me read a personal letter from his mom and dictate yeah, yeah. a book yes. from his mom. And he signed a confession. Wow. Wow. Uh, Is he still there? Uh, no, I believe he actually passed on. Okay. Now, I got I got off with death. I got to death row in 1992. So uh, some of those people were already in their 50s. Uh, we've lost a, a number of people I know. We we were reading about yeah about seems a quarter of people were actually passing away whilst they're on death row um, before actually yes. getting to um, to their final day. They, that thing about that person signing a confession and they obviously don't seem literate enough to be able to know what they're signing. Just incredible. In your case as well, there was an issue about shoes and the size of shoes that, that were found at the, the case. You know, how, how does that then, you know? Uh, it, again, there's some, they're just uh, things that I, I, over the, over the 10 year course uh, of time, the things that we were fortunate enough to find out about. But like I was say, my first trial was just, uh, you rushed me through it. I was arrested just two days. I worked for the post office. I wasn't going anywhere. I owned my own house. You know, I had a dog, I had a roommate. I wasn't running away anywhere. They yeah, rescued yeah. me just two weeks time. But uh, as as far as the shoes go, I, I they actually had shoe prints. Now, she was found in a men's bathroom. This was a pub. It did have a kitchen area uh, where the murder weapon had been taken from. Same type of towel floor as in the men's bathroom. They had actually initially 
uh, taken a, a magic powder of some kind of light and actually got shoe prints around where the knife was taken in the kitchen, same towel floor, around her body where she'd been stabbed, her clothing had been cut off over and that's laying in the men's bathroom. They had the same exact uh, prints there. They went and bought the shoe to match, a size nine and a half converse. Now, this is before I was arrested, um, but I was arrested. Later on, it changed to a size 10 and a half. But the amazing thing, were my bare foot was bigger than the whole shoe print. Wow. They covered that up the first trial. By the second trial, when I, the first trial, I had a court-appointed attorney, by the way, who was given $5,000 by, by the county to defend me. $5,000 to represent me in a capital murder case. And he never so did the, a capital murder The shoe site was just completely off, but they decided to go with it and use it as evidence. Exactly. And you can't even get a divorce for $5,000. And, you know, so I got really no representation, period. But yeah, just something that simple was disregarded, ignored by my attorney. And until my second travel, we actually had a paid attorney, very, very experienced, did this evidence come out. But even worse, so if you'd like to know another piece of evidence is even worse. So remember, I was convicted of a bite mark on her breast. Mm-hmm. Now you figure, you know, now this was 92. So it's a little bit before DNA. It was just coming around. It was just starting, but certainly they could have took a swab of that because there should have been saliva, some evidence of saliva left at that yeah. site. Fortunately, they had taken some, but they couldn't match to me and they covered it up by 1996. When my second trial came around, my attorney was able to get a hold of that saliva. And the most, the preeminent top doctor who actually testified in OJ's trial, Dr. Henry Blake out of California had actually tested that DNA and it completely excluded me from the saliva, from the bite mark that I'm supposed to make. Imagine in my second trial when that came out, how wonderful it felt for my family, my friends were there. The saliva is not my DNA. Yes, that's great. But see, now I had still didn't understand it. I still didn't get the fact that a capital murder case is the most important case a prosecutor is ever going to have. That's the biggest feather, the biggest star, yes. most accolades he's ever going to get to put somebody on death row. Don't mess those cases up. And that prosecutor stood before the jury in 1996 at closing arguments, told that jury to ignore that DNA, disregard that DNA. It has no bearing on that case. That was She's a waitress. That DNA was just there from somebody else's bottle or glass. But we know who made those bite marks. Mr. Crone did this. He's the one that killed Kim and Kona and completely slowed that juror over to disregard that DNA. So just so everyone knows then, so you you were found guilty, you then had your trial, you then had your appeal process where you had this new evidence with the saliva, and then you were still found guilty and kept in prison. That's correct, isn't it? It is. So my second trial in comparison, though, was over seven weeks long. We had over 500 exhibits. We had three bite mark experts testify for me. All said that the other expert was was completely wrong and they could pick out uh, different parts where he was uh, uh, wrong. And again, that jury found me guilty after all that. Uh, it was it was it was numbing. I mean, I, I when they announced the verdict, I froze. Everything went into slow motion. It was all like little pictures going here like snapshots the jurors are wiping the tears out of their eyes the bailiff can't hardly read the rest of the verdict uh, my attorney's hanging on my shoulder saying my god ray what, what happened how did they not see the truth i i i can't believe it it's not over i'm with you till the end and, okay. and i look over the prosecution the victim's families and they're jumping up and down celebrating like they won the big ball game and all i'm thinking is whoa stop rewind you know back this up this can't be it can't be happening and then I heard that horrible scream and wail. My mom and sister were in the courtroom, not six feet behind me. And I, I heard them crying out loud, just bawling. And I turned around and looked at them and said, don't cry. I'll be okay. My little sister, I'll be all right. Mom, it's okay. You know, they weren't just doing it to me. They were doing it to my family. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. So, um, so do you then have to appeal again? So does it then, did it then go to another trial? 
And all this um, time, right? You're you're then still on you're still in yeah, prison in horrible yeah. conditions, and it's such a drawn yeah, out it, process, isn't it? It is, and just to back up, but of course, by now I did know a little bit more about the system because this weren't my first trial, but but uh, yeah. it was still outrageous. But uh, just to back up quickly, why I got a new trial for death row. Um, Right before the trial was to start, I was called into the judges' chambers, and the prosecution introduced a videotape made by their bite mark expert back when the big VCR thing, how he matched conclusively my teeth. My attorney was actually awake. He was paying attention. He objected. He said, Your Honor, I've never seen this evidence before. You can't allow this in at the last moment. The trial was supposed to start. That was like a Friday. The trial was supposed to start Monday. And the judge says, overruled, I'm allowed this evidence in. And then in a burst of brilliance, probably never again recreated in my attorney's career, he said, your honor, if you're going to allow that evidence in, I'm going to need 30-day continuance to, to prepare for this evidence. The judge said, deny, we need to get this trial rolling. Now, this is just seven months after my arrest, seven months since she was body was found. He said he needed to get the trial rolling. Um, and Arizona Supreme Court ruled that as, as a defendant, you have a right to know what evidence is going to be used against. You have a right to receive that evidence in a timely manner. They said the, the judge was wrong in allowing that in. They said my attorney was perfect within his rights to ask for a continuance. Uh, and they said that this did have an overwhelming impact on the jury. And for that reason, they ordered a new trial. So that videotape was not allowed to be introduced again. But now the second trial, I, I got sentenced again. Again, the jury gets released. Again, I got to go before the judge. Again, I tell my attorney, I got nothing mitigate. I didn't do it. He said, you let me handle this. And this is an example, any profession, whatever you are, where you do it to the best of your ability. And it's something when you're representing somebody that could be getting their life, be facing an execution, you certainly shouldn't cut no corners or take no shortcuts. And my attorney for the next couple hours went over with the process, with the judge, all the piece of evidence pointed to someone else. Why those footprints didn't match me. Why fingerprints, palm prints in the men's bathroom with the murder weapon, the knife was washed and cleaned and hidden underneath the trash can. Why none of those prints matched me. Why fingerprints on glass and a bottle that were sitting at the bar that she looked like she must have been drinking with somebody did not match me. Uh, hair on the body did not match me. Saliva on the body did not match me. And when he was done, that judge said he had lingering residual doubt of my guilt. He said he, he said it was hard for him to believe that somebody in my background could have committed this crime. Okay. You know, he said this would haunt him for the rest of his life. And he found that as a, as a mitigating factor and it outweighed the aggravating factor. So he sentenced me to 25 to life instead for the murder. And then added on 21 more for the kidnapping. I was now facing 46 years minimum. It was 35 when it happened. Added up, it was 81 years old until I ever have a chance to get out. It was a death sentence. I just wasn't going to go to death row and have a lethal cocktail oh, yeah. shot in my yeah. someday. But it was still a death sentence for me to live to be 81 in our prisons and the violence that they are. The healthcare system is horrible. It's usually doctors that can't get insured on the outside. Uh, and that's what I was facing in, in comparison also excuse me, in comparison also instead of going back to an isolated cell and an isolated death row uh now i was going to what they called the walls where there were other murderers there that walked around each day going to their job going to the wreck going to the chow hall now it was like uh it was live action now it was a little bit different now because our yeah. our prisons here are races they are run by gangs by each of the different races uh the, the guards sometimes stir that up on purpose just to keep us fighting amongst ourselves and not uniting against the oppression of of the the prison systems uh but that's where i was now going for and wondering what's going to happen and after a couple of years my appeal got turned down they said i had a fair trial they said everything went fair and now after about eight years in prison for for this i'm starting to think man i'm going to die in here ain't this something wow but i still kept up with the bible and i still kept my faith a lot and my family kept supporting me and looking for who did it we figured the only way i'm ever going to get out is to identify who really did do it yeah well done so did 
Was it? Did the Innocence Project get involved? Did we, did we read that right with your case? They were not, they were not involved in my case. Uh, no, I, after I got out, then again, this was new. I, my, I got out in 2002. The Innocence Project had been around by then uh, and they've been working. I've been fortunate enough since I've been out to work with the Innocence Project because okay. I, am, I am a DNA exonerate. It was DNA identified who did it. Yes. Uh, so, I, so that's what the, what's the innocent profession, Barry she Innocence, uh, do with uh, Barry Sheck's group is, is they only deal with uh, DNA cases. And so I've been able to, to speak with and for them about the, the, well, just the blessing that DNA is, the preservation of DNA, the collection of DNA, and the use of DNA. Okay. And, and Ray, just going back, so you were on death row then, was it for three years? In, in no, it was like two years and eight months. It was almost okay. three years. Well, that's that's long enough for for anyone. <laughs> so uh, we won't we won't quibble over a, a couple of months. But <laughs> it, was there just out of interest? Was there any? Well, you were in Arizona prison. Was there anyone there who actually went off and they were executed whilst you were on death row? Those those three years, there were six people executed. And I'll tell you, and I'll tell your listeners, weren't nobody kicking and screaming, "Don't kill me! I want to live." Kill me! Do me a favor. Wow. Get me out of here. We, we, we read about death row syndrome. And again, going back to where you were saying about if you have mental health issues, it could be made worse. But the squalid conditions that you are living with, not knowing if or when you might die, obviously your family going through that as well. So you're saying that people were, by the time it came around to them, they weren't going off kicking and screaming. Absolutely. And again, thankfully in our country, realize that they have made mistakes over the years. It takes longer to execute people now because of the need for yeah. the appeals process and, you know, to, to make sure they get it right. So it might take 10, 12 years to get executed. Uh, in some cases, even states even longer. But uh, yes, those people had been on that death row. A lot of them were for 15, 20 years. And as I said, it's like, you know, dying is not hard. People die every day for many multitude of reasons, surprised, uh, you know, suicide, but living in hell Living and suffering is, is what's hard, you know, dealing with that day in, day out, having no opportunities, no hope. You gave up your hope. You, you know, you might have lost your family. Some people were on, on our death rows for killing somebody in their family. You can imagine the division that caused within that family. Uh, so, yeah, these these might be like, kill me, get me out of here, you know. And that's uh, and I'm not uh, I'm not joking. I'm not making that up at all. There was no fighting, kicking, screaming about, oh, I don't want to go. Wow. Uh, and you prepared yourself. Most everybody already had picked their last meal. Uh, you know what they were going to say when they were been there for years. Uh, it, it was just a way of, of uh, looking at what what the state had the power to do as well. It'll be a blessing because I won't have to live and, and exist and here anymore. One of the, the petty things that we we read about and you were saying like the guards, how they would treat you was they'd leave the food outside, as you mentioned earlier, and let it go cold before serving it to you. But if they then pushed it through your hatch, they didn't care if it spilt on the floor. Yeah. And just those, those things of just, yeah, like a living hell, it must be when you're innocent, Ray, like just the, the mental strength to, to get past that. Uh, again, there, there was a couple of things that gave me strength. Uh, as I said, my family that believed in me, uh, the strength of, from from reading the passage in the Bible, but also, again, surprisingly, is what there there was a certain point where I realized that I'm not the only one this happened to. If I was the only one in the world or the only one in Arizona that ever been convicted for, or sentenced to death for something they didn't do, I probably would have hurt a lot more emotionally and, and incredibly. How could this be? But I started to realize there was other people that were done wrong, just like me. I was not the only one. And I'm not sure how to justify that and make me feel a little bit better, yes. but it yeah. just didn't make it feel so worse. So um, I asked you earlier how it felt when um, 
when you were obviously sentenced. What about if we come around to, to the end then? You know, the, the day or the, the days leading up to that, that you know, I don't know, what, what did your lawyer or solicitor, barrister sort of call you up and say, look, they're going to take this DNA evidence, they're going to accept it. Like, I mean, that must feel the complete other end of the spectrum. Uh, again, I was doing time now. By now, I had worked my way down. Uh, I'd been almost five years in regular population, no longer on death row. I was down to a, what they call a medium yard where you could actually have a job. You could actually walk around a little more freely. Um, and I got called over to the counselor's offices around noontime. Now, we had been doing, we knew about DNA uh, in 2001. Arizona legislature's passed a new law. Most states, you only have a small window to bring up new evidence after a trial and conviction and sensing. You only have a small window. Some might be three months, some might be a year to bring up any wow. new evidence, but it hadn't never been brought up before. Okay. Well, they recognized DNA is too important, too critical, too definitive, and they couldn't put a time restraint on DNA. So they passed a new law allowing for post-conviction relief, meaning, meaning testing after you've been convicted of DNA evidence, provided it was properly maintained, would have a direct bearing on guilt or innocence. Uh, and and in, in my case, we had found out that, that uh, there, there was some type of uh, biological evidence on her clothing. My attorney, my second attorney, had concluded because she had actually been stabbed through her clothing so hard with this butcher knife that it bent the knife. And it actually went in the back of her lung, which, which led to a, a quick death. But then her clothing was cut off of her. And we thought, well, this big butcher knife that came from there, if somebody stabbed that hard to bend that knife, there's a good chance they might have cut their, their palm in the process of doing that. And unfortunately, the police had maintained it, had kept her clothing, had been cut off and thrown in the bathroom. They had kept that clothing. Uh, we were able to look at it and notice that there was some kind of, not me, but my, my investigators, maternities, where you notice there were some kind of stains inside of the, the blue jeans that she had been wearing on the underwear. Under that new law, we were able to get testing done. Uh, they stalled it. They hid it. They covered it up because it came back with a match to another man. They didn't know what to do. No. Uh, they took them all, instead of eight weeks, it took almost 16 weeks for finally to release the information. But uh, so information was out there. We couldn't talk much in the phone because any phone call you make in prison that's not to an attorney is recorded. So we didn't want to give up any information because of all the things that they've done to me over the years and, and uh, yeah. uh, to block my innocence, you know, my claim of innocence. Uh, Finally, that, that day came, I was around lunchtime, and I got called over the counselor's office. It was my attorney on the phone. He goes, Ray, how you doing today? I said, fine, just another day in paradise. And he laughed. He said, well, what are you hungry for? I said, what do you mean hungry for? I'll eat whatever's in the chow. He said, no, really, what do you want? Steak, seafood, Mexican food, a beer? What would you like? I said, Alan, what the devil are you talking about? He said, I just got off the phone with the prosecutor's office. They just got back from the, they just got back from the judge's chambers. They're cutting the paperwork. You're coming home today, Ray. Wow. I, I just said, what did you just say? He said, roll up, Ray. It's all over. You're coming home. And I looked at the counselor guy that was there and he could overhear it. Right? And I handed him the phone and they hang up. And he goes, well, you know, them lawyers, you know, he said, you can't believe all of a sudden his phone rang. He's like, sir. Oh, yes. He's yeah, right. Here. He's right here, sir. Yep. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. And his eyes are getting big. Here it was the warden of the, of, the, of the prison calling him to tell him, have me sign a release because news was there to talk to me and, and then prepare me to be leaving. Uh, I walked out of that prison three hours later after collecting my clothing. I walked past the rec yard where people were up. I was actually been in the paper that day, it turned out. It was on the 12 o'clock news that I was being released. People okay. were at the fence saying, go home, Ray Crone. Uh, uh, still breaks me up. But I was walked out by a man who said, you remember me? I said, no, I don't. He goes, uh, CB6. I, 
or like you said, uh, uh, CB, uh, CB6. And I said, well, that's death row. He goes, yeah, he was just a regular sergeant there when I walked on. He was a guy that did the riot act. This is what you do. This is how we act. This is what's going to happen to you. He was now a deputy warden. He was the man escorting me out of there. He said, I remember when you were on death row, there were some words said about you. That you might not belong there. That you, you were different than the other people. I said, I'm happy for you. He said, I, I, I'm truly happy you're getting out. My attorney that was my second trial attorney who lived in California, I was in Yuma, Arizona. He made the two-hour drive over there to pick me up, which is why it took three hours to walk out. But he picked me up, and we're we're driving off a big complex. There's more than one uh, unit was there. And uh, I had this check for $50, which was gate fee. They give anybody gets out. They saved your money up over the years for working. And I had this check for $50. I said, what do you want to do? I said, I'm going to cash this $50 check. I want to get me some good food. He said, well, I'll give you $100 for that check right now. I said, Chris, it's a $50 check. He said, I'll give you $100 right now. I said, I'll give you $100. I said, well, here, take it. Uh, and uh, anyway, then I walked out the gate, and there was the media. They wanted to know what it was like to be free, what was wow. I going to do, how did I survive. And I, I want to get this in because it really was important. I, you're stunned. I mean, all this is that. As fast as it was, that one day I woke up in my bed, and that night I was sleeping in the county jail. I woke up that day in the, in the, in the Department of Corrections and went home and slept that night in a, in a hotel room. But but nevertheless, because the media was there, I was the 100th person in America. They had now made 100 documented mistakes of sending people to death row for something yeah. they didn't do. And so there was a lot of media coverage, but they were there asking me different questions about how I survived, what I do. And I talked about my family support. I talked about how I read the Bible three and a half times front to back in those 10 years, slept with it under my pillow. And a reporter in the back had raised his hand. He said, well, Mr. Crone, Given your faith in God, how do you justify him leaving you in prison for 10 years? I thought, what? That's a big question. How do, justify, how do I justify God leaving me in prison for 10 years? I mean, how do you answer a deep soul searching question? Like, I a prison's right here, is, is 20 yards behind me across the road. And there's a fence where, the, and, and they're, they're, they're all leaning forward. The lights in my mind's blank. And, and then something shot in. I said, well, you know, maybe it's not about those 10 years I spent in prison. Maybe it's about what I have to do the next 10 years. And since that time, I had time to think of that night. As I say, I had to sleep in a hotel room. I was not free to go. I was released under my own OR before you could go before a judge. They're, they got a filled up a, a list of cases. I was three weeks before I could actually go before that judge. Uh, but uh, during that time, I had time to think. I said, maybe that's if they could put me on death row. Somebody's a six-year veteran in the U.S. Air Force, seven years with the post office, no record. They yes. can put me on death row. They can put anybody on death row. And so I started sharing my story. And again, uh, thank you all for, for being interested and for your, your uh, people that watch your podcast to have a concern about what we are still doing here in America and how we are, we're taking people's lives and we get it wrong. And you could hear in your voice then, Ray, as well, you must have told that story so many times, but you still got emotional and you still had a lump in your throat. Like just I, got goosebumps when, I got goosebumps when you were telling that then. Yeah. Just just recalling that that time when you had the phone call to say, as you say, you woke up in a, a jail in the morning and you we're getting out three hours later as yeah, unbelievable. Yeah. So, so pleased for you. I mean, it's one of those things. Do you, do you think you can ever forgive the people who put you through it? I I've been fortunate again to, to, to the, the, some of the people that I've been around since people have been in, we got, we got men and women have been in there for 20 years, a lot longer than I've on death row the whole time. I was fortunate enough to work, work with sister Helen Prejean. Uh, might be known for the book, dead man walking also the movie. Um, she started Group Witness Innocence, which I'm, I was the first uh, member of, uh, sharing our, our story to other people to, in, in hopes of abolition here in America. And we, we made great progress. We've had a number of states abolish the death only in the last 10 years. All of our people have spoken those states uh, to those legislators. Uh, but 
but I, I got another good fortune. I have been speak with her and, and talk about forgiveness. Uh, what we do, forgiveness is what you do for yourself. It's not to let the other person off the hook. It's not to let the other person's life be better. That's on them. Forgiveness is for you to allow you to move on, for you to be better. So there's no animosity. Yes, I would have liked to, you know, take my my prosecutor outside and, and had a nice long talk one way or another. Uh, but there's some of them denied what they've done. They're not in the same mental. I, I think when you get into certain professions, there's a certain point where you no longer want to be judged by anybody else that you think you're the ultimate expert and your power is going to stay in your hands and you're not going to give it up or relinquish it. And you're not going to admit you ever made a mistake. And that's not just in prosecutors. There's other professions that do that, as we all know. But uh, but that, that's on them. Nobody came and apologized that put me in prison. But I can tell you, after two years of being out, I was fortunate enough to go before the legislatures in Arizona. Some men and some women who had actually voted and passed that law, they got the DNA testing for me. And they stopped their their their, their procedures and recognized me on the floor. I was up in the balcony above, but they recognized me, took a few minutes to tell my story. And they all turned around in unison and apologized as one. I'm told it's the first time a, a legislative body ever apologized to, a, to an exonerate. Wow. I wish my would have been there. It was just me, but, I, but other people should have been there. But I take that very, very highly and very respectfully and very thankfully appreciative to them. And so that prosecutor, those police officers, uh, uh, you know, don't have it in them to do it. They have to live with that heart. They have to live with those emotions. Yes. They have to yeah, live with yeah. that. I, I'm much better for it. And I can share and tell my story. It allows me to, to share my story. They had control of me for 10 years. I'm not going to get out. You know, when I walked free, I was not going to be looking over my shoulder or looking at them. It's like, it's like driving down the road in your car. There's a reason the windshield's bigger than the rearview mirror. It's what's in front of you. You need like to keep that, focused. Yeah. Not what's behind you. That's really and so good. I've been fortunate enough to, to have learned that and, and, and actually adapted that and became that. Uh, I know there are no, a number of people that work with us or exonerees that have a reason to be hateful. I did not go back and live in, in where this happened. I moved back to my small town in Pennsylvania. So I didn't have to put up with walking okay. around where people might think yes. I was guilty. Yeah. But I had been very fortunate in the people that were around me and gave me the emotional fortitude, the wisdom to say this looks like the right path to be on the right way to get over this to get beyond this definitely Liam, we were you, um, about how you settled back weren't we to normal life with this yeah that was one of the first questions the, the kids at school asked me that literally probably the first thing that came out of their mouth how do you settle back into what would be a normal in inverted commas life like having had that happen and, and again, and that's a great question because why why wouldn't you wonder what's what what is the last name? I I believe me, I was worried what my family, what my friends might have thought. Our prisons are not a country club; they yeah. are violent. Believe me, I've been stabbed a number of times. I've been gassed, been shot at in there with wooden bullets, all parts of riots. That's what happens. But again, I'm not there now, and I was fortunate enough to be a 35 year old man before this happened to me. I was an 18 or 19 year old kid that got thrown in our prisons and our jails and never really did mature, never did really grow. So I did have a life before that. Going back wasn't quite so hard, but you don't really go back. You just acquire a new life because you're not going to forget. I travel a lot now. I've been fortunate enough to go to Europe and speak with a number of people. Uh, I, I've had been on television. Not this stuff that I ever planned. It's just what happened. Yes. But but it's not going back to where you were. It's becoming who you are now because that's what you have to accept. What happened happened. What are you going to do about it? You know, the, how are you going to live with it? And did so I've been very change in those ten years for you, like I know mobile phones and stuff, and like, was <laughs> that like that that time that time technology would have moved on. Like, was it a bit strange coming back and then like going to a supermarket, for example, and 
Just seeing absolutely ninety two to two thousand two. I'm sure your viewers can so we can remember those years. Uh, I didn't know a lot about music, but I certainly had no real consumerism. I mean, I didn't know what's a good price for it. But I can tell you right after I got out there in Yuma, Arizona, and I and I got that hundred dollars for that that check. Uh, uh, we went to a, a local convenience store. And I'm going to go get me a, a, a beef and bean burrito. That's what you used to always get. And I'm going to get me a regular uh, uh, iced tea. Well, I went there where the, where the packaged sandwiches are. Well, there's uh, there's like 10 different kinds to pick. I don't even know what to pick from. I, I didn't have to make many choices before in prison. Uh, I finally picked uh, something. I went over to where the iced teas were. They got raspberry flavor, peach flavor. They had a, I mean, I didn't even know what to pick there. Then I went over to the microwave. Well, what is this thing? When I went in, it was just a dowel you do and hit start. Now it's got popcorn and and reheat and all this other. There was a little child there. I don't I don't guess he was more than maybe twelve, probably at most, at the candy place right there next to where the where the little uh, microwave was. And I asked him for help, and he looked at me pretty funny there. But next thing he had it in there, pushed the buttons, was going. I didn't even know what he'd done. But I you know I learned to laugh at myself. Uh, later on, like I said, we had to stay in a hotel for three weeks. They luckily discounted the price of me. I was in the newspaper and the news all the time. But I noticed one day I'm out walking down the road there, and, and I'm I'm dodging in and out of, of, of telephone poles and, and the parking meters and car mirrors. I'm walking right on the edge along the edge of the road there where the cars are parked. And I looked over there. I was walking past the construction site where there was a chain link fence over there. Okay. You got to step five feet away from chain link fences in prison. I was still subconsciously avoiding that uh -huh. chain I went over and shook the fence, laughed at myself. You learned to laugh. In a way, it was like a, a kid, again, maybe like for some of y'all, that when you went away and left mom's house and went away to college, you had to learn to take care of some things for yourself. You know, you might yeah. as well laugh at yourself till you learn. But that's what I, what I, I, how I reintegrated in life. I didn't know what a good price was for anything. Uh, I couldn't eat. We went out to eat the very night I got out. We went to, out to eat. We got Mexican food. But in prison, there was no condiments. You don't get salt and pepper. It's very bland. We, we all, the only red meat we ever got was was chicken and turkey and a little bit of hamburger. Um, yeah. There was no other red meat ever. So my stomach couldn't take anything rich, sweet, okay. any of that stuff. I, I mean, I, it took me a while to, to, to eat. But one of the most, um, I don't want to call it sad, remarkable. I'm not sure what exact word to use. You all can, can think of the word for yourselves. But when I went to lay on the bed in that hotel room, I thought I was at sea on a little rowboat in a, in a, in a, in a storm. I, I couldn't lay there. I felt sick. I was dizzy. I took <laughs> the that little inch and a half comforter like they have on top of them. I took that folded in half and laid it on the carpet. And I slept on that for the first, first three nights until I could get used to laying in a soft bed. Wow. Wow. Um, um, Bray, just, just let us know um, for the people mainly in Europe, what happens if you go within five feet of the, the chain fence in the U S prisons? Uh, our, in our on our rec yards on the maximum security prison where I was that that's that's attempted escape that's you know a security breach a violation they could fire uh, when I was on death row and in the maximum security they could fire a warning shot usually they just yell out at you but you you come accustomed you don't even get that close anymore it's yeah, just yeah, yeah. dog response type of thing you know you don't do it you uh, get but, threatened but, yeah, with you, shot so you just thought yeah, yeah you just it just it just changes your mentality of not wanting to walk near a chain link fence. For, for yeah, that. I got in a car. It's like, well, where are the turn signals? There's a turn. Well, what, how comes my windshield wipers are going? I mean, I didn't know how to work a car things and stuff. It was all. But again, I learned to laugh at myself because I'm not stupid. I was just ignorant. I just hadn't learned something new, but I'm not yeah. incapable of learning. So a, a lot of it really was in those first weeks and, and months. And it, and, and it goes on longer than that. But obviously the things that you had to do was eat, sleep and, and, and get in the car. I had to learn a lot of new things about that right away. Of course. You um. You talked earlier about uh, the charity Witness to Innocence. Uh, 
that you work with, uh, you know, with this view to abolishing the death penalty. I just wondered if you could just talk to us a little bit about, um, like, what do you do? Is it is it essentially this? Is it telling your story? Um, you know, really trying to get across just the pointlessness of the death penalty, if you like, or, or whatever, yes. you know, just in your own words. Exactly. Uh, Sister Helen Prejean, as I said, who wrote that book and then had had the movie Dead Man Walking, uh, realized that this was in the early 90s that she wanted to call for a moratorium. She knew that the U.S. wasn't going to stop executions completely and just be done with it. It just wouldn't work that way. So she called for a moratorium. She thought, let's take a little smaller steps. How about a moratorium? Let's just stop executing people. And let's start looking into what's going on in our system. Uh, find out about. And then she had the idea of what better way than to have to have a person that was on death row and exonerate who was innocent to share their story. I had just gotten out, as I said, number 100, the big number 100. It's yes. very, very important. And so she had called on me and to, to do that. And I was able, to, I, I'm, I'm reasonably experienced and I, I, I'm, I'm comfortable enough to speak with people. And it, it, it becomes easier the more you do it, obviously. But I was willing to do that, to share my story with it. And uh, and that's how it started. We grew then eventually. Uh, now we have uh, almost uh, six people on staff. We have over 30 active members, all men and women in the United States who at one time had a death sentence uh, later on to be exonerated, to be released. Uh, we share our stories to, to everything from high schools to local churches to uh, to law school students to we go before legislatures when they're, when they're pushing everything. For, and it's not just the death penalty. That was our main focus, but also just to get system reform, how they store DNA, how they treat DNA, uh, police lineups, different things. We will go and testify at legislatures about our personal experiences. Uh, thank God they kept their clothing in my case or I wouldn't be talking to you now. Of course. You know, of course. Like and we so were- that's what. And that's that. And, and lastly, but probably more importantly, because not all of us got out of death row and say, I'm going to abolish the death penalty. I'm going to do something to fight the system. Some of us just wanted to get away from all this stuff. But we also now we are a family of them that, that walked into similar shoes. We know what it was like to hear somebody pronounce a death sentence on us. We know what it was like being on death row, whatever state it was. And we know how what that type of treatment was and stuff. And now we are a family you know, an adopted family that were forced, uh, so to speak, that we get together once a, each year uh, when COVID preventing and other things. Uh, we, we get together and we have a, a, a gathering, a retreat for our, uh, uh, not only the exonerates, but a family member. Uh, we've been doing it for, for the, well, the last 20 years almost now, uh, just to be part of also of that part, as you said, how do you adapt back into life? How do you get back in life? How do you overcome what you went through? Not everybody had the same opportunities. Not everybody had the same backgrounds. Certainly not. We're all from different faith-based, religious-based, race-based. We're all a different uh, 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 status in life, so to speak. But yeah. we all have that one thing in common. And when we come together, we are family. And to me, really, that's the most important thing that our members can still say, look, I'm not the only one this happened to. There's other people out there. And if we can get together and work together, we can all get through this together. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. We were we were reading about how recently that Virginia have abolished the death penalty. And we thought that might seem like quite a, a monumental thing. We we're reading that it actually started in Virginia in Jamestown in 1608, the first person who, who got um, who got executed. So we didn't know if if the tide is turning and if, if the Virginia abolishing it will have a greater impact and influence other states. Uh, absolutely. And again, uh, with our history in the past 10 years, I believe there's been about what well, counting Virginia, I believe, I believe it might be seven or eight now. It is. It's almost a, a, a 50-50 now, the states that have the death penalty in America and the states that don't. Some states just have kind of like a, a, 
a moratorium, so to speak, uh, where they're not executing anybody. Uh, they're not going to execute anybody, but they do have the death penalty on the books. New York's one, for example. It's not abolished, but it's never going to be used. But nevertheless, uh, yes, over those past 10 years, the number of states, I, I believe, and even with the COVID, even in the last couple of years, there's still been uh, three or four states each year that come up with a, with a, a bill to abolish the death penalty in that state. Uh, in the last five years, there's been a half a dozen states that have come within one vote of doing that. Each time there's a holdout, there's a little, but each time it's that comes back up, it's that close again. We're called to speak. There's other number of experts in the field. Uh, th there's a number of people that were actually the executioners. Imagine ex-wardens that has to be had to be present when there's somebody was executed. Say, I don't want to do this anymore. Why do you make my people have to go and carry out a death sentence on somebody? We're not the ones that sentenced to death. We're not the ones we're in the court. We're the ones that just work in this place, and we have known this person, and now we have to go kill them because you tell us to. So imagine the power of that testimony of somebody that actually worked in a death house, seeing people executed, saying, I don't want to be part of that. Don't make me do that anymore. Uh, it is a, a, a wave. It is is coming. We will abolish the death penalty here, hopefully within the next 10 years. Uh, we would hope that the federal government would come out and do it outright. But again, states have a lot of power. And it, it's funny, our country, how it works, it's, that some states still hold tight to it. It's kind of amazing, sickening or disgusting or um, powerful, if you will, that uh, some of the ones that want to hold on to the, the, the longest and the deepest and the hardest are the ones that are considered the Bible Belt states. But so be it. Uh, we we uh, we work around. And we we you bring an argument why you think you need the death penalty, and I'll tell you why you're wrong. Uh, it's funny how a number of people you ask them why they want the death penalty, and they kind of hem and haul around. Uh, and really, really, it is just say, well, I'd like the power of revenge. I'd like the power to get even with somebody that I'm angry with. It's an emotional response. But you know, you lock them up forever. You don't hear from them anymore. The family can actually get some healing going. Not waiting 20 years for somebody to be executed and say, oh, now my family's whole again. It just don't happen that way. There's too many myths. There's too much um, falsehoods uh, and misrepresentation about the death penalty. But we're getting that cleared up. There's a lot of people now. The younger folks especially aren't falling for it. And, um, and, and, and for a fact, we are making progress in this country. It's a slow progress, but it's still something we have to be proud of what little steps we take each and every time. So, Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Wow. Well, we hope we hope you succeed in your mission. And if anybody can be let off death row when they were innocent, especially just one person, then it's absolutely worth all the cause that you're, you're going through. Thank you so much, Ray. It's been so interesting talking to you today. Like, I think we could probably keep doing this for another hour. Like, <laughs> yeah. it's unbelievable. It's just your, your story's amazing. And, you know, hopefully what you're doing now as well is really going to sort of help things, I guess, isn't it? And um, it obviously is. So let's, you know, fingers crossed it, it carries on. Part, part of this just too is like y'all are part of my therapy. Your, your listeners, while I can't see them specifically and talk to them, so I know that they, they will hear this. Uh, and see this. And, and that is part of my therapy. Again, as, as we talked about, how do you go on with life? And part of it is know that that's, that's happened for a reason. If that was God's reason, if they put me on death row, because I'm one that can come out and speak about it, because as I said, if they can do it to me, and do it to yes. me, then that's the, that's the path that I need to go. And I don't want to resist that. I didn't choose it. But if that's what was presented to me and I can do it, uh, you know, somewhat, uh, uh, I, I guess, uh, at least fairly, uh, to, to see appreciation. But I'd like to share one more story, which again is one of those things why why I do it. And I think most of the exonerates do it. I, uh, when I got out and moved back to Pennsylvania, a little small town that I'm from, I was in the newspapers. They had local newspapers there each time, each day for those seven weeks of my second trial. 
and so when I got back and you know a lot of, there was less a lot of tension in our town and and uh, and and I, I volunteered to go and speak at any of the local high schools that wanted to hear it. So they'd have a assumed I might talk to four or five hundred kids. I might be talking to nine hundred thousand kids. But I'd done that right away in, in 2002. And it was about three years later, I was speaking at a law school. I was right up the road. It was by Penn State. It used to be Dickinson Law School. But usually when I'm done speaking, I'll talk for about an hour, uh, close to 45 minutes or so. And then we have questions and answers from the audience, uh, great questions. And then usually everybody fouls out, but there'll be a handful of people that want to stop where they want to sign an autograph, just shake my hand, thank me, whatever it is. And, and they'll wait in line up, up by the front. And and so I noticed that people were gathering. I noticed a, a young man and, and an older woman, I guess it was probably his mom, but they were, they kept letting people pass in front of them until everybody was going. There was nobody left but them. And, and this fellow walked up to me. He said, Mr. Crone, you probably don't remember me. He said, you spoke at my high school a couple of years. You spoke at my high school a couple of years ago. You're the reason I went to law school. I wanted I wanted to introduce you to my mom. Wow. Uh, you can just imagine what that did to me and for me uh, again of why why I want to do this. He introduced me to his mom because I'm the reason he said that he went to law school. Incredible. Incredible. Best of luck with all of it, Ray. It's yeah, it's such a good cause. And um yeah, I really hope you you managed to achieve your goal with it. Thank you for taking the time to speak with Thank us. You. Thank you so My much. My pleasure. Thank you all for the interest in this. Y'all take care and be good now. Liam, we've just been speaking to Ray, who's on death row. What a topic expert for us to have. Holy moly, that was interesting, wasn't it? That, I don't know if that might top my favourite interview we've had so far. How interesting is that? That's just... You say that every week, but... <laughs> I do say that every week. That's unbelievable, though, isn't it? Unbel oh. I mean, I was sitting, most of the time, imagining it was me, mm. and just... just Oh my days! Went to death row at thirty-five. I'm thirty-seven, so like pretty much now being on death row. Can't even comprehend being in that situation when you know that you're innocent as well. It's absolutely yeah. mind-blowing. Yeah, the mental strength you must have to to, to just keep believing that that it'll all be alright in the end, like mind-boggling, yeah. unbelievable. If you've listened to this, please let us know your thoughts or your comments. Uh, at two guys one topic um, put it on Instagram Twitter whatever thank you thanks very much for listening everybody get out there and share some knowledge <laughs>